iHeartRadio presents Inside the Studio. I'm your host, Joe Levy. This time around, I got a chance to go long with Dave Matthews, which, if you've ever spoken with Dave, could be a single sentence. What I love about Dave Matthews is this is a guy who's passionate about what he does. He takes it very, very seriously, but that doesn't stop him from having a wicked sense of humor about everything, including himself. We talked about why it took six years between albums, why he took a year off from the road with the Dave Matthews Band, the secret connection between his band and Black Sabbath, and what it was like to turn 50 and keep on going. In 1991, the Dave Matthews Band played their very first shows in Charlottesville, Virginia, at a benefit for Middle Eastern children and also at an Earth Day festival. Matthews was born in South Africa and grew up in America and England, but he was back in South Africa for high school, and after graduating in 1985, five years before the apartheid regime began to crumble, he moved to Charlottesville rather than serve in the military. He was tending bar there at a place called Miller's, and he had to be coaxed by friends into performing his own work in public. But once the Dave Matthews Band came together, things happened fairly quickly. The band released its first album, Remember Two Things, a mostly live collection, in 1993, two years after those first gigs. They built a passionately devoted audience, in part by using the model of the Grateful Dead, meaning they encouraged the crowd to tape and trade live shows. Two years after that debut album, they opened three shows for the Dead on that band's final tour in 1995. The next year, they were opening shows for Bob Dylan. And the year after that, in 1997, the Rolling Stones. Of course, they were growing their own audience that whole time, and by 1998, they were headlining stadiums. That's the year their third studio album, Before These Crowded Streets, debuted at number one, starting a streak that's continued across seven albums right up to the recently released Come Tomorrow, first Dave Matthews Band album in six years though they were almost always described as a jam band, and still are, the Dave Matthews Band became one of America's biggest rock bands in the 90s, a position they've never really given up. They wrapped a bunch of different audiences into one thing, sort of the same way they wrapped a bunch of different music, the jazzy saxophone of Leroy Moore, the bluegrassy violin of Boyd Tinsley, the solid funk bottom of drummer Carter Beaufort and bassist Stefan Lassard, into one thing. It's easy to understand the significance that Dave Matthews Band took on for the Grateful Dead's audience after the death of Jerry Garcia in 1995. But what's less obvious is the role they played for 90s rock kids around the same time, since 1995 was also the year that Pearl Jam stopped playing the United States for three years while they waged a battle with Ticketmaster. In the post-grunge moment, Music that sounded both happy and sad, that mixed the intimate with the epic, was a style looking for a hero. Some bands could latch onto it for a few minutes the way that, remember them, Marcy Playground, or the Spin Doctors did. And some could manage it for a few albums the way Stone Temple Pilots did. But aside from Dave Grohl, I'm hard-pressed to think of anyone who's managed to make it last for a career that spanned decades the way Matthews has. 
Dave Matthews had experienced loss early on. His father had died from cancer when he was just 10 years old. And songs like Satellite or Lie in Our Graves talked about the fragility of life. Look, so did Tripping Billies in its own way. Other songs like Crash Into Me were about chasing down pleasure. A big audience trying to figure out how to make sense of bad times and make the good times last found something in the Dave Matthews Band. Look, it didn't always translate from performance into the recording studio, and that may be the one thing the Dave Matthews Band truly shares with the Grateful Dead. But the live show became a defining experience, documented on more than 40 live albums. The Dave Matthews Band audience is loyal. For them, it is not summer without sitting on the lawn at a Dave Matthews Amphitheater show. In North America, they were the biggest grossing band of the 2000s, selling more than $520 million of tickets. And that slowed down only slightly. According to Billboard, in 2015, the band played 50 shows, selling 720,000 tickets, and earning $42 million. But last year, a couple of unusual things happened to the Dave Matthews Band. The first is that they took the summer off, and I think that might be the first summer in 25 years without Dave Matthews Band shows. As Matthews explained to me, turning 50 had something to do with it. My 50th birthday did fall right around the same time as the Seven Deadly Sins or the Cardinal Sins took over the highest office in the nation. Your birthday is in January, so you're saying it was around the time of the Trump inauguration. Exactly. You turn 50, you have this moment of what? Thinking, do I keep doing this? Do I change what I'm doing? Like, What's going on? I think there was a lot of different thoughts. I think for me, I've never been ungrateful I don't think, I may have been tired, but never been ungrateful for what I've managed with the band and and what all the guys in the band have taught me. But I do think when I turned 50, I was like, I really have to have a selfish year. So in 2017, Matthews took time for himself with his family and thought hard about the future of his band. While he was thinking about the future, a reconsideration of the past was underway. Thanks in part to Greta Gerwig's use of Crash Into Me in her coming-of-age movie, Lady Bird. The song turns up twice. First, when Lady Bird, played by Shersha Ronan, plays it over and over again with her best friend while she's crying her way out of a high school heartbreak. And then later, she's riding in a car with her new boyfriend, who's one of the cool kids, and Crash Into Me comes on the radio while he's talking trash about not going to prom. I fucking hate this song. I love it. I actually want to go to prom. There's a lot going on here. A young woman is standing up for herself, not letting other people define her, but also... It's someone in high school saying fuck it to being too cool to admit that she loves the music that she actually loves. It's a poignant moment in the movie. I'd say when she asked if she could use the song, I was like, yeah. I didn't really. You, you I didn't, didn't, you didn't, didn't look, see the script? You, you, I didn't. I could have. But she's a talented actress, and it was a few years ago. And I was like, it's at the beginning, but she asked because I think for her it was a poignant 
song for the, th- you know, I'm g- grateful. But then when I watched it, I was like, what? That's a super generous place to put it. And it also shows sort of exactly what I was saying. But it was a beautiful place that she put it. So I had to send her a note and say, thank you so much. Well, nice of you. What happens in the movie is a little like what happened to Black Sabbath or Kiss in the 80s and 90s. Those bands were pretty much hated by rock critics in their day. But they became celebrated when kids who'd grown up loving their music began to make records or write rock criticism of their own. Looking back now, you can see how Sabbath's gloom and emotional chaos told a certain kind of truth for 70s kids let down by the implosion of the 60s. And just maybe, the Dave Matthews Band represented something of a flip side, a a sort of hope for its audience. An interracial band, led by a guitarist who'd grown up in South Africa. The Dave Matthews Band came to prominence around the time Bill Clinton was elected. They were about the world as you wanted to see it, rather than the world as it was. And if that sounds like an exaggeration, you haven't talked politics with Dave Matthews, a committed progressive. I think the best political position for me is as far left as you can go before you start going towards somebody else's right. So I think we make the mistake here often of saying, you know, you have the right and you have the left. We barely scrape the left in this country. But if you can go further left and then stop, which would be the real center, before you appear to be going towards somebody else's right, that's a good left. Because then everybody on the left, then, then the truth is that we really would be best off if we were all in our communal left rather than everybody's absurd radical right. The radical right is the problem. I don't know if about the radical left. I think they're all just reasonable. Come Tomorrow has some songs that date back more than a decade to 2006. Matthews worked with four producers and pulled out tracks from sessions that had been left on the shelf. It sounds like it could be a mess, but it isn't. It's a more focused album than he's made in a long while with a bigger, heavier rock sound. Compare the version of Can't Stop from Live Tracks, Volume 6, recorded 12 years ago. With the studio version from Come Tomorrow. That's the sound I heard when I went to see the band on the road this summer. A slightly different band. As Matthews told me in this interview, there were some long-simmering tensions with violinist Boyd Tinsley. Tensions that made him think hard about the future of the band. Tinsley announced in February he was taking a break to focus on his health and family. In May, around the time the tour started, sexual harassment charges surfaced against Boyd, which he has denied. But the Dave Matthews Band management has released a statement saying he's no longer a member of the group. On this summer's tour, Matthew is touring with a strong seven-piece band that includes Rashawn Ross on trumpet, Jeff Coffin on saxophone, and Buddy Strong on keyboards. Matthew says he's never felt better about the music he's playing. Mind you, he's said stuff like this before. But look at it this way. Come Tomorrow is an album about family, about love, and about the future. It starts with a song about giving birth. 
So think of this as a rebirth moment for the Dave Matthews Band. When he says he's never felt better about the music he's playing, about the work he's doing, he's saying it after a lot of time and reflection. Here's what else he had to say. If I could fly at the speed of light, I could get to Canis Major in 5,000 years. Welcome to my guest, Dave Matthews. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. So I saw you play in Hartford on Saturday night. I just want to ask, when you're doing a 16-minute version of Crush, do you know at the start it's going to be 16 minutes, or do you get five minutes in and like, let's go long on this one, boys? I think it was, I mean, that's one of the songs that we have grown accustomed to expanding, but there are times when we get out of hand. But I don't mean that in a bad way. That one, I do remember thinking, wow, this one is, keeps going. And it really, and the way I think about it is it's not, the, we've left the song a long time ago, and now everything that's happening since then, we're in a completely different place. But it's nice to have a launching pad, or sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes you come in from some sort of improvisation and then land in a song, which is another way to do it. And occasionally, which I suppose would seem like a more obvious way to do it, in the middle of a song, we'll go off on some tangent and then hopefully find our way back to it. But there's a variation. I don't know that we know exactly how long. There have been times, I think it was with a Bella Fleck and the Flecktones, we did a version of a song, uh, 41, with them that lasted close to three-quarters of an hour. You're in some major league dark star territory yeah, there. But I think it's fair to say that by the time that song ended, there's no way anyone would have known what the hell the song was. <laughs> if they came in the middle of that, they would have been like, what is happening? But that really wasn't the effect when I saw you guys on Saturday. Like, I knew where the songs were, and the band sounds very, very tight right now. Oh, God, it's so much fun right now. It feels like every moment there's such a connection inside the seven of us. There's just this sort of don't jump off the train because it's going fast kind of feeling right now that there's moments where it locks in so tight that you really just have to do your part. You have to have faith in in what you're doing because if you lose faith, that's the only thing that could stop. We're in such a mean groove that I don't remember feeling this kind of power. You've always been a, a band with great flexibility, but there did seem to be like a new kind of power to things. Yeah, uh, especially the new material, which seems more rock band focused. That, and that's interesting you say it because, you know, we've been working on a lot of that stuff for, you know, some of the tunes actually are more than 12 years old. The new songs, some of them have a real muscly, groove driven thing to them. It kind of has an effect of doing that to the rest of the repertoire. I think from the beginning, we've been open to improvisation to letting things go but everything changes i've been struggling a bit with the band with the sound of the band or where we've been going and i think you know that's what led to boyd stepping away i think that bringing in buddy strong it was realizing now just this ingredient of energy and of focus that has changed it's like finding the last part of some 
Not to say there wasn't a magic. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there's this new ingredient that Change has up the recipe. Everything tastes a little different. Everything changes. Mm-hmm. And everyone changes. It's like we're all looking at each other like in a whole different way. Dave Matthews Pan took last summer off. Yeah. Took a summer vacation. Mm-hmm. This is the, you mentioned Boyd stepping away. This is the first tour without Boyd. Boyd, yeah. Was there any apprehension well, I on think your part, like, yeah, there's been apprehension for a long time. I, you know, I what's think it, what does that mean for me? Well, there's been, I feel, and I think the guys, all, well, I know the guys agree that Boyd certainly was a big part of the early part of the band and, and it's remained because he's been there from the beginning, this powerful personality. But it's been a while that I think all of us have felt that his focus, I mean, he was there on stage, but, you know, in rehearsals or in the studio, his focus was really, it felt like to us, not in the room. Mm. And so he was his own whirling dervish or his own storm, but that really worked beautifully sometimes. Other times it was very disoriented or seemed disconnected, and it was a frustration, and we came, there was a lot of confrontation. But I'm a fiercely loyal person, and it took a long time for me to say, look, we need more from you. We need more focus on us. It just felt like it's been a while that in that time when we're meant to be focusing on what we're doing, I've been having a really frustrating time getting to feel like he was putting in anything more than the bare minimum and to get him to cop to that. That frustration in combination with his own personal things led him you know, to follow my advice and go to look after himself. The result of that for me was that we suddenly have this, we're not having to pull anyone along. Suddenly everybody's like at the front line, you know, pushing to get ahead. You know, we don't know what we're going into. You know, we got Buddy Strong. It's just outrageous. I think he's dragging us all along. But we're all dragged. Everyone's pulling forward. It's like... So Buddy's on organ. Buddy Strong is a newest addition to the family. And we met years ago, but we started talking about working with him. Rashawn actually called me up and said, hey, man, there's this guy, Buddy Strong. I listened to some of his gospel work online, and I'd, I'd known he worked with a lot of different people. This band is an interesting band, and we want not only you to play the notes, but we also want you to play your notes. What do you got? Mm-hmm. And he has got a lot. With him, it's, it's like this open, it's opened all these doors to our own music and to each other. The playing, I mean, Carter's killing me. He really is. And he keeps saying, and he, he keeps really saying, is. looking at a buddy, and he's being like, man, well, you know. What? Yeah, that's what it, it is. It, you know. He was a joyful presence. Oh, good Lord. Every time I turn around and see him, it's like the presence, you can hear that everyone's present, but you can see it in his eyes and you can see everyone else because we're all looking at each other like everybody's looking at each other as if quite a lot of the time, if it's not overt joy or getting lost, it's with this sort of like, this shit is bad. What is happening? It's like getting something that you deserve, but you sort of can't believe that you're getting it. I got to say, when things started, I was like, geez, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, do I want another trumpet solo? And then like 20 minutes in, I was like, there better be a fucking trumpet solo coming. <laughs> yeah, he's, Rashawn is blowing like, I see him over there. Looks like, you know, he's going to come out of the front of his horn. You know, if, uh, you know, it's like, I'm like, what is happening? Everybody, 
Jeff actually all, it looked as though Jeff up in Hartford, there was one point that I thought he was going to, this is the last show that we played. I thought he was going to go to his knees. At one point he was bent, he was, he was blowing. I was like, look at this fool. He's about to go down and it would have been appropriate. He didn't, he didn't, but it was close. I was so tired by the end of the show that I almost couldn't physically play the last song in the set. But I was so happy about it. Like my hands and my body and my voice. I was so out of breath. I felt as though like I might not be able to make it. But it was such a joyful feeling. I, I don't know. I don't know. Over, it's not joy. It's not like happy, happy, smile, smile. It's a mean groove that is going on up there. So let's talk about the new record. Come Tomorrow. Ninth studio album. Seventh consecutive number one album debut on the Billboard album charts. If you're keeping score at home, mark this one as number one. Whatever statistician came up with that, I feel like someone's been fixing the books, but I'd like to thank them. That looks good. You know, it looks good. (laughs) A band putting out seven consecutive albums that enter the charts at number one is a record. That is a a new record, yes. It's a new record for records. Yes, new record for records. (laughs) You mentioned some of these songs date back to 2006. There are four different producers, three studios. There was a one session that was started for an album and scrapped. This doesn't sound like it's going to be a successful record, and yet it's a really good fucking record. This is a focused album. I think it's interesting, and I'm glad that you feel like that, because I feel like almost more about this album than I felt it about any of them but I think it was, you know, I made, I, we recorded some of the recordings that date back a while. I mean, I loved those records, mm. but I had sort of said, well, that's not finished. I don't have a place for that yet because we didn't finish that project. Then we did Grugrux and we finished that record and I loved that record. And then I did some more recording, you know, so we did Grugrux with right. Cavallo. And then I did more recording with Elijah, who I always write with John Elijah, who's one of the producers. I always write with him. The record that we had sort of shelved before that we were doing with Batson. And then I made another album. I went back. We did an album with Lily White that I'm happy with some of the songs. I don't think in the end, I don't think it was the best of the album could have been, but I still, there's some good things in there. And then I went in the studio again with Rob Cavallo, and we had the beginnings of, it worked for a while on an album, but, and we had more than the beginnings of a great record there. But again, for whatever reason, I think disappointed in my own self, my own head, getting, you know, a lot of things on my mind about the band. My, I desperately wanted to make a, not feel disappointed in some ways, like a little bit the way I felt about Away From The World. Although, again, I'm, I don't want to throw a baby out with all, the bathwater. All, all these albums are They're good, fine, good yeah. children. None of them are, yeah. we're not going to, but, but you have said that Away From The World, you feel you went back to almost overwork. Yeah, I feel like that, and I feel like it lost some of the teeth. Then I went back in the studio, and I was working with John Alasia and uh, Rob Evans, two of the other producers. We just started listening to some of the songs. Mm. I was really just saying, you know, that is as good as anything I've ever done. That's just how I started thinking of everything. At the same time, I'm also writing more music. And what they were all also telling me was like the stuff that we were doing right now was as good as anything that we have in the back. So we've got this super creative process going. It was like a a monument. I don't know. That's not the right word. It was almost like something to hang 
the whole process on was really when I went back and listened to the track Can't Stop, which mm. has Leroy Moore on it, and it was sort of a live performance, and Batson was in the room. And and we, this is one of the two tracks that go all the way back to 2006. Yeah. Alasia and Rob Evans went in and took the track, which was recorded with Batson, and they mixed it. And then they said, this is what we came up with. And I sat and I, li- I was like, oh, this is a monster. And the way they had Rob Evans, like he likes to get to Carter's drums like right out, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's a beast. So then everything, the way that I was thinking about it was everything has to be as strong as that. You haven't made an album in six years, but it's almost like this is a greatest hits of the last 12 years or something. It feels like that. In a weird way, it feels like this is the best stuff I've done. And I think Grugrux was the most focused album because in the middle of it, we lost Leroy. So it had this real purpose that was behind it too, which was to pay homage or homage, depending on how you want to be, to Leroy. Mm -hmm. And so even from the cover, everything about it was Roy. And I think that's what sort of gave me and Carter and everybody the motivation to get that record right. And Rob Cavallo, who'd met, and Doug, who'd met Roy, and we'd all lost him. So that sort of focus was like, we had to finish this record. We have to make it great for Roy. In this instance, I do feel like I someone said you need to step back you need to look at what you've made and not discount the heart that you put into some things and so i started digging through and there's a lot of music i couldn't get on the album i want to ask you about that because this is this is a very focused record in a different kind of way for you in that i don't think there's been a record that is quite this inward looking from you before a lot of songs about love A lot of songs, they seem to be about marriage or they're about lasting relationships. I'm often used to your songs addressing the outside world a little bit more, whereas this felt like a very personal, my family kind of record. I think maybe there's sort of allowing myself a little bit of that was feeling comfortable to talk about it. Maybe that says something about where I am with my family and also where I am with the band. Maybe it's turning 50, maybe whatever or past that, whatever it is, I do feel like a lot of this is looking inward. And even that song, Black and Bluebird, is a little bit of a part of conversations that I have with my son and with Mm -hmm. my daughters. It sort of is like the words, the things I've learned to think about in some ways or wanted them to think about when we're having conversations, either about the world or about selfishness or about what's happening or the wonder, you know, always trying to remember that the universe is much bigger than we are. And just that kind of idea from my kids is I want them to feel stunningly small and and therefore inspired as opposed to, I can't stand my old phone. I need a new phone. Oh my God, it's the worst. You know, I mean, that's fine to have some emotion like that, but I'm grateful that my kids aren't overly obsessed by that kind of stuff. I think that song is wordy way of saying that we are so tiny in the universe that if all of us and everything on the planet vanished tomorrow, nothing, not even the moon would notice our absence. That's really interesting because particularly at this moment in time, and this is a difficult period in American history. Let's put it mildly. Yeah. And the world. I mean, you watch everywhere these 
waves of self-absorbed self-righteousness and sort of ignorant arrogance, scary combinations of personalities. And, and also to connect what's happening in America to world politics, waves of nationalism, oh, uh, which, yeah, that's, that's which, which are one. a very different kind of thing here in this country, I think. Nationalism, uh, yeah, that very often allows the most disturbing things to happen in cultures when a culture starts to think that it has somehow reached further or is the example of excellence or should be acknowledged as the most excellent. When that happens, very dangerous, dangerous things happen. I think nationalism is what allows apartheid. Nationalism is what allows Hitler. It's all fine to be, you know, I'm American. I'm proud to be an American. That's fine. But you have to be able to say that feeling and that belief is no more reasonable or more true than if a Canadian says, I'm a Canadian, and I'm proud to be a Canadian, and I'm great. It's no more true. Well, I also grew up being taught that saying I'm proud to be an American meant that you were setting an example that you wanted to share with the world, and not I'm proud to be an American, stay out, keep to yourself. That is we'll the, be on our side of the world, you be on your side. Yeah, but it is a scary time, and I do think that the sort of sense of entitlement— or the idea of being, if you're born in America, for whatever reason, that, for no reason, other than that, you are worth more than someone who is born in Panama. That, to me, is an obscene concept, that the value of a human being could in any way come from where they're born or who whelped them. And you did mention... Apartheid earlier when we were talking. And of course, that is the idea of something you grew up with and a system that said, you know, you can be born here in South Africa and still be worth less oh, yeah, than other that, people here. And that my concern in this country is that nationalism that we have to keep out all these people because this is ours because we were born here or we arrived here, right? That is truly strange coming from a country that's so young and is so recently created by immigrants. This country is half the soldiers that fought on the side of the Union in the Civil War were immigrants. So it was a civil war of sorts, but it was fought by people that were coming here, that were from somewhere else. We always have to acknowledge that, because if we don't, then I feel less American. It's like, oh, because I wasn't born here. I'm less American by some people's standards than someone who was born here, which doesn't fit in my opinion, the America that I think, in my ideal view of it, it could be. To look at the state of the population of this country and the, all our differences and to acknowledge some things but not acknowledge others, talk about America as if it's this land of justice and freedom and then not acknowledge that it's a land of immigrants and not acknowledge that much of it was built by the hands of slaves and that certainly it couldn't be what it is now had it not been for the hundreds and hundreds of years of enslaved people doing a lot of the work. The album is named Come Tomorrow. The title track is about this change we want to see, right? It would be great. There was talk at first when I had the album together. There's some murmurings, people were saying we should put Come Tomorrow out as a single. And I, I just said, even though it was written before the most recent Parkland horrifying shooting, I wrote it and we recorded it before that. But that said, regardless, the timing of it would make it seem pretty on 
the button. And I felt like that also would be, I felt like it might be perceived as sort of stepping in to something that really isn't my place. I'd rather be supportive of the efforts to get some sort of sane situation with guns and automatic weapons in this country rather than I would try and jump in the middle of somebody else's terrible situation, pretend I'm part of it. That song is, at the same time as it's, in some ways for me, quite cynical, it is also, you know, when I talk to my children about how they see the world, I mean, their view is so much more open and tolerant, even though I feel like I grew up a very tolerant person. And the 70s was, a, as far as the authorities were concerned, the late 70s was a very tolerant time. It was like suddenly we're all like laughing at the stupidity of our... But, but your girls are teenagers. They're teenagers now. 16? Yeah. And, and, and if you have a teenager now, then you are likely involved in a conversation about gender and fluidity yeah. that, that is not the one that you and I grew up with. No, it was and, one and, almost unthinkable. Exactly. You know? But my kids, they're all so connected to each other now as well through technology. Not always great, but I think a lot of times it is actually not a bad thing because they're always in touch with each other. A lot of time, maybe it's not the deepest of conversations, but sometimes it is deep conversation. I learn to be more tolerant and watch myself around from them more from than they, they learn from me. I'm glad maybe I made them lean toward a kindness, but you know, sometimes I'm a foul mouth pig and sometimes I'll say something in the car and they'll be like, you can't say that, Dad. I say, actually, I can say it. And I will say it in the safety of my family knowing that you better know that if I say some crazy shit that you know where my heart is because you sit around in my house and smell my farts, you know. Not only that. (laughs) So I was talking last week with uh, someone you've worked with for a long time who was full of praise for the way you keep it normal. She was like, you know, here's a guy who uh, drives his kids to school every morning, doesn't make a big deal about where he lives. It's not super secret. Dave Matthews lives in Seattle and you know, drives a Prius. I try not to stick out. I try to make my strange stay on the inside as much as possible. I do think it's better for my kids. I do feel like if I walk through an airport by myself, there's a much better chance that no one is going to notice me than if I walk through the airport with a posse. If I really don't want anyone to see me, well, then I just won't go outside. <laughs> and okay. and I and I do think I don't want people knocking on my door and saying I made you this jam or won't you come to my wedding. I don't want strangers coming out of my house, but I feel like if you're sort of accessible, it makes the curiosity as to what's there less you, it's less interesting. You, you treat yourself like a normal person, people will treat you like a normal person. We mentioned that you took a, a summer vacation last summer. Did turning 50 have anything to do with not going out for a summer tour for the first time in a long while? I still worked. I did go on tour with Tim Reynolds. It's light. It's easy. You know, it's just two guitars. Turning 50 also, my view of things changed a little bit then too because... How? Well, it was not totally unexpected, but it was... My 50th birthday did fall right around the same time as the Seven Deadly Sins or the Cardinal Sins took over the highest office in the nation. Your birthday is in January, so you're saying it was around the time of the Trump inauguration. Exactly. You turn 50, you have this moment of what? Thinking, do I keep doing this? Do I change what I'm doing? Like, what's going on? I think there was a lot of different thoughts. I think for me, I've never been ungrateful for 
what I've managed with the band and what all the guys in the band have taught me. But I do think when I turned 50, I was like, but I really have to have a selfish year. You know, it's all relative, not regardless of everybody else, but just because of me. And so I told my kids, what do you want to do with what kind of party? My wife asked, what kind of party do you want for your 50th birthday? I don't want a party. Mm. They had to give me a surprise party. But I do want to go have a trip, and I haven't figured it out yet, but I want to take you all on a trip, and I want to go somewhere where, and then I want to take all our cell phones away and take all our things, and I want to hide everything, and I want to do something. Where'd you go? We ended up going to Kenya, to Reteti, this incredible elephant sanctuary and some other places and had i think all my family would agree i know i'm not saying it everybody can hop in a plane and go to the middle of kenya where there's nothing but it was everything that it could be and although i felt selfish um in some ways if i looked at it it was uh just a unbelievable time for me and my family to indulge each other and to uh enjoy each other's company and to and it was really nice it was also beautiful because it wasn't a battle even in the remotest way please can I have my ipad oh can i just check my math it was like there was none of it it was crazy but it was because we were around all i, I think it's easier to be without your ipad when there are elephants that, yeah, that, that, that may that, make yeah. it easier to to I forego think, social media is wild that life. alone is a good argument for an outright ban of ivory in this country. Sure, because sure. Animal conservation will and help you stay in the room. Sure, stay in As stay. will rhinoceroses, although they are not as smart as elephants. I did not know that. An elephant is hauntingly smart animal. Huh. If I was going to tell anyone to read a very simple, very quick read about elephants, there's a beautiful book that anyone would enjoy by Lawrence Anthony called the Elephant Whisperer, and it's just his experience with a herd of wild elephant. It is mind-boggling the respect you will gain from a very unassuming book, but it will make you wonder at the universe. So you turned 50, you took your family to Kenya, but did you have that moment? I always think of that Neil Young song, I Am the Ocean. Yeah. People my age don't do the things I do. It's funny because I do sometimes hear my own voice saying, there's no way I'm going to be doing this when I'm 40. I mean, I can hear my, I know my own voice and it was going well. There's no way I'm going to do this when I'm 40. Now I feel like I was wrong. There aren't a lot of people who get to keep doing this. Like It is a crazy thing. And unless you're working as a musician and you've had to work all along to be lucky enough to get where we are and keep being able to do it at that point. It's yeah. really very lucky. I don't take it for granted for the most part every once in a while i take it for granted i do feel like i don't care as much about what people think as i did 20 years ago i I think i deeply cared now i'm kind of like if you don't think that what i did was good i don't care i'm not saying you're wrong although i think you're wrong (laughs) i i'm just saying that i don't care because it's good it's funny too it's a different thing when like the people who grew up on your music start telling their stories or they start writing their rock history because they don't do it. It's the same thing. I was thinking about this the other day. Black Sabbath. We think of Black Sabbath as fucking Sabbath. Yeah. But in the 70s, if you're reading rock criticism, it's like, eh, they're no good and they're not really Satanists. That's not real and it's not good. It's not good music, right? And it's fundamental to us. uh, Yeah. I I just know that it's at 
the core of me, you know. <laughs> I do remember being almost frozen with joy fear when I was in a gym here in the city and Ozzy was on a treadmill near me. Walking, I was not like, running. What he, is happening? He's, he's walking, not running. No, right? he was running, but he was the whole. He was shaking the whole. I mean, he runs like Frankenstein, which is not surprising. But he's like, <clears throat> I mean, his feet are hitting the ground. I, mean, I was like, how do his bones hold up? <laughs> he was running, and it was not long. It was maybe a decade ago. I was impressed that he was running, but I was also just like, you know, and eventually got the courage to go, <sighs> you know. But I didn't bug him too much. And he's, of course, as we all know now, having watched how charming he was on his, you know, the first and only show of its sort that was actually worth something. But in my strange opinion, oh, you mean the only reality show, the only family reality oh, show yeah, worth it was watching? So the great! Why well, do it again? That one was perfect. Just watch reruns. It was perfect, and you could see he was a loving, amazing person. But what great music, too! I hate to, you know, you might right. hate to admit it, but it's great. It's right. in my bones. We're now at a stage where. The Stones are on tour and they're in their 70s. You can probably do that too. I'll let that happen when it does. Well, the way I feel right now is that I cannot believe how new this, how good I feel about this record. Like, I think that if someone listens to this album and says, I don't get it, they should either listen again or, I don't know, go eat a cupcake, because it's, it's their loss to me. It's such a good record. I feel so good about it. And you're back out on tour this summer. I cannot remember feeling this elated about playing music with anybody and feeling so lifted by the experience as I do with, you know, these same people and some new people than I've ever felt in my life. And it's just, what the hell did I do right? But I just feel... Like when I look at Carter and I know that we were in his basement practicing, and I know Stefan was a 15-year-old kid when I first approached him. When I look at them now and I see those same people and you don't really see how much you ate, you know, that makes me think, well, we did something right, even though we've lost some friends along the way. We did something. We found something in each other that is re remarkable, and I don't take it for granted. Dave, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Right on. It was really nice talking to yeah, you. Yeah, this was fantastic. Thank you, dude. Thank you. Inside the Studio is an iHeartRadio original podcast created by Chris Peterson. This episode was written and hosted by me, Joe Levy. Our executive producer is Sandy Smallins for Audiation, and our mixer is Matt Noble. We'd like to give a big thank you to Dave Matthews and RCA Records. Follow Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.